want to invite you to take your Bibles and find the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And we'll be reading in verse 1 there in just a moment. The title of this morning's message is Before He Sends You, He Prepares You. Before He Sends You, He Prepares You. And this is the first in a new series of messages, the series we're going to call The God Who Sends, S-E-N-D-S, not the God Who Sends. God doesn't sin. He sins. And so we're going to be, over the next few weeks, uh, looking at this idea of mission and missions in the heart of God and the role or the place that you have inside the mission of God. And so we're going to explore this, uh, and we're going to do it in um, several different ways, although it's kind of unusual to start a series and not know exactly where we're going, but I don't, and I think that's appropriate in light of the topic. So, um, I guess to, to begin this morning, I would like to just share a little bit of my own journey in this area and my own um, passion for this subject. My wife and I met in college, and when we got ready to graduate, uh, we both had a sense that God was going to send us somewhere, and so we applied to what was then called the Foreign Mission Board, now the International Mission Board, for journeyman service. That was then a two-year program where a couple could go overseas for a couple of years and experience overseas missions and then come back, typically go on to seminary or graduate school and either continue in ministry here stateside or serve go, going back to the IMB. But uh, for us, we had been married less than a year at the time of application. At that point, you had to be married at least a year. The stresses of going overseas and being plunged into a different culture, uh, they felt that that was important. And so we applied to the Home Mission Board, now called the North American Mission Board, for a very similar program, a two-year program. Uh, program of service called US-2, and US-2 missionaries served for two years in some part of the United States, often serving with a veteran missionary who had been doing it for many years. And ultimately, we found ourselves, um, within a few months after graduating college, found ourselves in Southern California, in Los Angeles County, living a block outside Beverly Hills, California, and two blocks below Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. The business that the Foreign Mission Board had about being concerned with culture shock and too much stress on young couples should have applied to that situation. Uh, my wife is from Etiwamba County, Mississippi. And if you have the opportunity to take a Southern Belle from Etiwamba County, Mississippi, and drop her into a county with 15 million people and over 365 shopping malls, which means you can go to a different one every day, ladies, and never exhaust the supply, um, I really don't recommend it. It was a challenge for us. And, and we were experiencing missions, and I'm going to say more about it in just a moment. But why, why was I so interested in it then, and I still continue to be interested in missions here in the United States? 
if you were to take all of the people who would be labeled as lost in North America, including the United States and Canada, if you were to take all of the people who would be people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, by the best research that I've seen in recent years, that number is about 255 million people lost in North America. Now, when we talk about lostness in the world, you will typically see rankings of countries where the needs are the greatest. And you will see China, you will see India, you will see nations of the world in that list. You will not see the United States and Canada. You will not see North America. For whatever reason, we leave that off the list. But if you were to put that, that region back on the list, there would only be two nations in the world larger in terms of sheer lostness, and that would be China and India. We would be the third or sometimes counted the fourth largest lost population on the planet. We are without question the largest English-speaking region of the world in terms of lostness. And, as, and dear ones, you and I have got to break out of this thinking that missions is something I do when I get on a plane and fly for hours overseas and land in a place where they speak a different language and they have a different culture. This church has a tremendous legacy of supporting missions abroad, overseas. And yet, you need to hear this, we are losing ground right where we live at home. And if we do not address that inequity, if we do not understand missions as something that is local and global and eternal, then there will come a day when we will not have the resources to send people overseas to the unreached groups of our planet. And so we are literally called to a place of holding the ropes for those who are overseas, yes. But we have an incredible calling that each of us must learn to own, to do missions where we are right now. And so one of the amazing things that we learn about God as we begin to look through the Old Testament and the New Testament is that over and over again, we discover that when God gets ready to do something, anything, he sends someone to do it. You see, he's a spirit. Our God is a spirit. He is sovereign. He's in control. But he does not have a body as we have a body. He does not speak as we speak. And so when he gets ready to do something, in his wisdom, in a, in a way that I don't understand, he chooses to take people like you and me and send us when he gets ready to act. And so throughout the scripture, we see this. It's a prevalent theme, and we're going to see it as we go through this series. Not as much today, but we'll see it as we go through it. Over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that when God gets ready to do something, he sends 
One of my favorite stories, I wasn't planning to share this, but one of my favorite stories that meant a lot to me in the Old Testament is the time when Saul, who was going to be king, but he didn't know that, Saul was sent out to find his father's lost donkeys. He had a servant with him. They looked and looked and looked, and they could not find the donkeys. While they were looking, there was a man of God named Samuel, and on a particular day, God told Samuel, Samuel, I'm going tomorrow, I'm going to send you the man that I want you to anoint as king. I'm going to send him to you. Saul's ready to quit looking for donkeys, meanwhile. He's ready to go home, and the servant of God said, said to Saul, look, I hear there's a man of God over in this town. Let's go ask him. Maybe he can help us find your father's donkeys. And so on the day that Saul shows up to talk to Samuel about where the donkeys were, Samuel had an insight that Saul didn't have. Because while Saul was out looking for donkeys, he was actually being sent by God to become king. Before he sends you and me, he prepares us. He prepares our heart. And he makes us into the kind of man or woman or boy or girl that he can use. And there's a sense in which preparation is always going on for the next step. And so this process that we're describing is truly a lifelong process. But, but I want to lay this out for you today in such a way that perhaps as you see it, you can place yourself on a grid, on a continuum. Where am I in this work of God that he is doing in Wynn, Arkansas? Where do I fit in? What is God doing with me? And do I recognize his work? So before he sends someone, he has a way of preparing the human heart for the work ahead. So here's, here's the question. How does God prepare someone to be sent? How does he prepare them to be sent? And the, I want to use the prophet Isaiah today, Isaiah chapter 6, a famous missionary passage. And by the way, if you didn't realize that the word Mission or missions or missionary comes from a Latin word, mitere, which means to send. How about that? The God who sends, missions, means to send. The Greek word used in the New Testament is apostello. We get the word apostle from it, and it means to send. The apostles are sent ones. People who are missionaries are sent ones. Going on mission is about being sent, and it's something that God is doing. How does God prepare someone to be sent? Number one, he reveals himself to you. That's the starting point. He doesn't send people who don't know him. He reveals himself to you. In verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6, the Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, those of you who are Bible scholars, that should pose some kind of problem for you right away because we know from Moses and others that no one can see God and live. So he says, I saw the Lord. What is that about? Well, the word used there is Adonai. It's not the name for God, Yahweh. And so Isaiah didn't see the essence of God, the being of God. He saw the Lord. So 
what did he see when he says, I saw Adonai, I saw the Lord? Well, interestingly, in the scripture, if you go to, you don't need to do this right now, but you can just jot it down if you're taking notes. John chapter 12, verse 41. The apostle John quotes this passage of scripture that we're reading, Isaiah 6. And then he says that Isaiah said this because he saw the Lord. He's talking about seeing Jesus. In one of those times where Jesus appeared in the Old Testament, he wasn't yet known as Jesus. It was one of those pre-incarnate, pre-physical moments where he appears. Isaiah saw. He says, I saw the Lord. So what, what did he see when he saw the Lord? Did he see some kind of weak, uh, feminine male? He says, no, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim. That means fiery ones or burning ones. Stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that repetition is so significant because it's as if they are out of words to describe what they are experiencing. Holy, holy, holy. Perfection, perfection, perfection. When this scene unfolds in the book of Revelation, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these fiery burning ones who are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And in these few moments, Isaiah, it's as if that thin dividing veil between our reality and all of reality is pulled back and he is able to see what is always going on in heaven. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it doesn't mean that God fills up the earth, that his glory is just somehow limited by the earth. I think it's more like a bucket down about a thousand meters under the surface of the ocean. The ocean fills the bucket, but the bucket is submerged in the ocean. The whole earth is full of his glory because his glory fills everything. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him, the burning ones who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke years, it was one of the longest reigns in the Bible of a king. He was, for the most part, a godly king. And obviously, Isaiah had re respect for him. I believe that there's significance in him saying it was in the year that King Uzziah died that this happened to me. And, and I don't know who your spiritual heroes are in your life, if you even have anyone like that. But I believe that Uzziah was very likely a spiritual hero for Isaiah and that when Uzziah died, Isaiah had no one to look to. And what God wants to do with you and with me is he wants us ultimately to have an experience with him that is unfiltered and is not mediated by some other human being, but he wants you to encounter him. He wants you to know him. Before he sends you, he calls you to himself. And sometimes we 
let the preachers talk to God. We let the Sunday school teachers talk to God. We let the deacons talk to God. But, but somehow we, we feel okay as long as we know that they're talking to God. But are you talking with God? Are you encountering Him? When, when we did go out west as a young man, I, I, I hate to admit it, but I thought that if I was engaged in missions like that, in a place totally different from any place I had known, I had such respect for people who were labeled or called missionaries that I thought somehow they were closer to God than I was, and if I could be part of that group, if I could go to a place that would be called a mission location or a mission site, then I would experience that same kind of special closeness and intimacy with God. Wrong. Your experience of God here is the experience you're going to have there. It's not about geography. The distance you have to travel is right here. And God wants to reveal himself to you. God wants you to know him. This is the very definition of eternal life that Jesus gave in John 17, 3. He said, this is eternal life, knowing God and his Son whom he has sent. Even Jesus was sent, thought of himself as being sent by God. But the definition of eternal life is not living forever in heaven. Eternal life begins the moment you trust Christ. And eternal life is a relationship. And it's you knowing God, getting to know Him, understanding something of who He is. And this was a life-defining experience for Isaiah. When we got there out west to, uh, to California, and I discovered that all of the spiritual challenges areas of my life where I needed to grow up, I discovered that they did not stay behind me in the South. They somehow got in the U-Haul and followed me to Los Angeles. And what happened in that setting is that the pressure was greater, the stress was greater, and I did find myself drawing closer to God but he used those stresses and used those pressures to bring me to him and to draw closer to him out of sheer necessity because everything else had been stripped away, all the props. Everything had been taken away. You didn't go to church because it was time to go to church. Out there, people went to church because they loved God or they didn't go to church. And so all those, those cultural props were gone, all those social props were gone, and, and I found myself coming to him, and he finally got me where he wanted me, and he, he began to reveal himself to me. And I began to know him as he wanted me to know him. So God prepares someone to be sent by first revealing himself to you and to me. This is um, this process for me, was one where I came to a place of great weakness and great need and great pressure, and I found myself having to cry out to him and draw near. The great promise of Scripture, though, is that when I draw near to him, no matter why, 
When I draw near to God, He will draw near to me. That's true for you too. So this is what happened to Isaiah 2, and this brings me to the second thing. How does God prepare someone to be sent? Secondly, He allows you to come to the end of yourself. So the greatest problem is your spouse. It's not your neighbor. It's not some other church member. It's not a family member. The greatest problem you have in your walk with God, the greatest challenge that you've got to deal with is you. Nobody else. And so Isaiah experienced this in verse 5, after he has this incredible vision of God. He says, I said, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am destroyed, and I have done it to myself. That's literally what he's saying. I am ruined. I am destroyed. I am wiped out. I am broken down, and I have done it to myself. And so he says, because I'm a man of unclean lips, polluted lips, lips that aren't usable to God, a holy God, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people who have the same problem of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so Isaiah's newfound awareness of what he was and who he was was directly linked to his vision of God. And when you and I draw near to God, we can expect that in the presence of a holy God, it's going to light up everything in us that's not holy. As I've counseled with dear ones who have been seeking God or drawing closer to God, I can't tell you how many times they've come back and they have just felt something like despair or something like hopelessness or something like, I'm not even sure I'm saved. Why? Because as you draw near to a holy God, His holiness lights up your sinfulness. I think the average person that saw Isaiah would have said he's a good guy. He goes to synagogue, he goes to the temple, he cares about God, he he seems like a good guy. Isaiah says, I'm destroyed. I'm ruined. I've done it to myself. I have messed up. I thought my agenda was all that mattered, and I prayed about my agenda. Oh, God, bless this. Oh, God, would you come in and take care of this problem for me? I was all about my stuff. I didn't realize that God was the one who mattered, and only he matters, and only what's on his heart is what matters. And here I've been going through life just kind of doing my own thing, happy as I can be, thinking that God is interested in all the the minute troubles and problems that I have, and he is as my father, There's, there is truth to that. He cares for us. But in terms of what, why we're here, in terms of my purpose in life, in terms of the, the mission that God has for me, Isaiah says, I'm so far away from that, I have completely missed it. I have been consumed with my own stuff. And the stuff that's been going on with my lips, the, th- the, the very prayers I've prayed have been all about me and not about him. So when we encounter God, this new awareness of God challenges, challenges our whole approach to life. Challenges the very foundations by which I conduct my life. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Why did God make me? Why am I breathing at this moment? 
The key is what you do next. And we're going to see how he responds in just a moment. But, but Isaiah clearly wanted to make some changes in, in his life, didn't he? Do you think he liked the way he felt? Do you think he liked the realization that he had about himself? And you see, one of the things that God does is he prepares you to be sent as he begins to challenge you, cause you to deal with the things in your life that are misaligned, that don't line up with who God is, that don't line up with what God's made you for. And, and, and he had this desire to do business. He refused to make those a preacher, but that's for a Sunday morning sermon. That's not for tomorrow. That's for other people who feel called to do remarkable things for God, but that's not for me. And as we refuse and reject what God's saying to our heart, I believe that it puts you into a loop, a spiritual loop. And God's not done with you. You're going to lose some immediate opportunity, perhaps. I, I believe that that's in Scripture. You're going, to, you're going to miss out on something God has for you, just like a whole generation of Israelites missed out on the promised land because they refused to trust God when God said, go in and take it. The losses are real. Now, God still took care of them. God's made sure their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out. He rained manna from heaven and he fed them, but they missed out on the greatest moment that God had had for them in their life. So I believe those losses are real, but there's a loop that goes. And if I say no to God, I believe he's going to bring me around eventually to that same place, that same realization. And if I say no to God again, he's going to bring you back around. Why? Because he's faithful to you. If you're truly his, if you're his son or daughter, he's not going to leave you where you are. He's not. And so he's going to bring you back again and again to that question, will you serve me? As you discover who I am, you can't stay the way you are. Will you follow me? Will you go where I send you? Will you line your life up with me and what I've made you to be? Time is not an issue with God. Uh, sometimes the time it takes for God to speak to you and me is not a function of our disobedience. It's a function of just his work in your life. He's preparing you, teaching you, exposing you to circumstances, exposing you to experiences that will prepare you for what he has for you to do. And sometimes that, is, that takes a while. I can't tell you how many times the older I get, and I am getting older, that I look at my life and the things that God is teaching me and the things that God is showing me, and I think, dear Lord, why didn't I know these things when I was 17? And more than once, I've turned to the Lord or written in my journal, dear God, why am I in the slow group? Why does it take so long for Don Fusick to learn some things? I wish I had known these things when I was young. But you know, something I discovered is that God sometimes takes his time. And, um, and it doesn't mean that you're behind or off course. Sometimes he's just taking his time. He has his own timetable. His timetable is not your timetable. Paul Bilheimer wrote a book called Destined for the Throne. One time in a private conversation, he said, man, man is focused on building the work. Man is focused on building the work, but God on building the worker. And when I survey scripture, I see that it took 40 years before Abraham was put in a position of offering his son as a sacrifice before God. 40 years to build the kind of faith in a man that would be willing to offer his son. Forgotten, perhaps, that he was called to do that. But then 
80 years it took God to prepare Moses for that. David, after he was anointed to be king, it was 10 years through hard years, hard years David spent, 10 hard years before he became recognized as king. Peter spent three years with Jesus and 10 years before he finally got it and understood, hey, we're supposed to reach Gentiles too, not just Jewish people. Paul was three years in Arabia, 10 years in Tarsus, his hometown, one year in Antioch before the Holy Spirit said to a group of praying men, separate for me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. Years it took. And so God is not in a hurry. He takes all the time he needs. But dear one, what I want you to hear is that the self-life, this idea that I'm the sinner, that it's all about me, that God is out there to help me with my life, uh, that God is out there to please me, and that it's not about me existing to please him, that that self-life is a real issue and that self has to die. Jesus was not kidding when he said that we had to deny self, die to self daily. It's a problem. And if God's going to send you or God's going to send me, he's going to deal with ourself, and he does that with Isaiah. Number three, another way that he prepares us, he causes you to experience his grace. Causes you to experience his grace. Verse six, then one of the seraphim, the burning ones, flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Grace. I have ruined my life. My life is ruined. I have said so many things that have been absolutely wrong about God, absolutely wrong about what it means to walk with him. That's what Isaiah was saying. What did God do? He provided forgiveness. He provided grace. That, that coal, that burning coal from the altar was an altar where things died for sin a place of death because of sin, and that symbol, that forgiveness through uh, something taking my place, something dying in my place, he took that coal, touched it to the lips. He said, your lips have been made clean. And that's what God's going to do. He's going to clean your life. When he gets ready to send you out, he's going to work on cleaning your life. Habits, thoughts, attitudes, behaviors that are not like Jesus, that as you learn to walk with God in his spirit, his spirit is going to produce in you a new kind of character, one that reflects the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the, the character of Jesus Christ. And so he wants to change you. He wants to grow you. And so part of the process is this cleansing that, that takes place. That whatever it is that I don't have to do what I think it is he wants me to do, he provides that. I don't provide what I need for being sent. He provides what I need to be sent. And so he, he teaches us, he trains us step by step, experience by experience, that when I walk by faith, that at the moment I take the step, I don't have what I need but I can trust him to supply what I need when I need it. And so just as he had these unclean lips and felt like his life was ruined, God supplied exactly what he needed in order to be sent. Number four, he prepares us because 
He enables you to hear his heart for your generation. This is really cool. Hang with me. Verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And that word heard. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go? It means I heard and I kept hearing and I kept hearing and I kept hearing. What's the point? God was always speaking. Isaiah was not always hearing. In May 1980, some of you are old enough to remember when Mount St. Helens, which was a 9,600-foot mountain, blew the top 1,300 feet off the top. It exploded. It erupted. The sound of that explosion could be heard 600 miles away. There were people who were rescued near the mountain, who survived, who, who later said, we never heard anything. I turned around, I saw the mountain exploding. I saw all this volume, tons and tons and tons of rock going straight up in the air, but I never heard anything, and I was standing near the mountain. Scientists call it the zone of silence. But that explosion was so powerful that it threw all the sounds straight up. And then it came back down. But it came back down past where those people were. And, and that zone of silence is exactly where Isaiah was when he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Oh, he heard the burning ones. He heard what they were saying. He saw God high and lifted up. He, he, he saw his throne. He saw him sitting there. He, he saw his majesty. He sensed his holiness. But he never heard his heart. And when God came and this dear man began to make the changes in his life, the adjustments in his life, he confessed, he realized that he was not the center of the universe. When he began to deal with himself in that way, he says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? Right here in Wynn, Arkansas, there is a timeline that he is working on, it is local. It is part of the mission of God. It's in the heart of God. He has a global aspect to that mission. There are things he wants to accomplish globally in our generation, and there are things he wants to accomplish eternally. In other words, there are some things we do. We will never understand why I went through that. We will never understand why I had to do that because it fits an eternal timeline. And so locally, Globally and eternally, there's a mission in the heart of God. Have you heard him? The problem is not that God isn't speaking. The problem is that we are not hearing. That we are not recognizing that God has a mission, and as that gets translated through our heart, it becomes mission, specific activities, specific assignments for specific people. I think about all those coaches that will be calling plays from the sidelines this fall. I don't know if you do that, Van. Yes, he says, okay. So I think about all these coaches that are calling plays from the sidelines. And I, I'm not going to make... 
Coach Pascal come up here and answer this question of what he would do if he kept calling plays and the quarterback ran whatever he wanted. The coach keeps calling the plays and, and the play gets sent out there, but for whatever reason, the quarterback never hears the play and keeps running the play he wants to play. What's going to happen to that quarterback? Yeah, somebody said this. Dear one, God is the one who calls the plays. Are we hearing the plays as they're being called? And when we do, how sweet it is when we begin to hear God's heart for our world, God's heart for when, God's heart for the world, God's heart for eternity, when we begin to sense what God is doing, sense his care, sense his love, for God so loved the world, for God so loves when, for God so loves the, the people in eternity, that he sent his only son, sent his only son, and he wants to send you and me. Every one of us here that knows Jesus, he wants to prepare you in that way. He wants to drop you into the timeline of what he is doing locally, globally, and eternally. And then number five, this is the sweet part. God prepares us when he, he sinks your heart to his heart, synchronizes your heart to his heart. God's heart is beating. And then there comes this moment where you hear his heart, you recognize what he cares about, you, you recognize what's important to him. And because of his grace, because of what he's taught you, because of his mercy, your heart begins to beat in unison with the heart of God. And that's exactly what happened to Isaiah. He said, then I said, here am I, send me! Send me! Sign me up! His heart is all about the heart of God. I want what you want, Lord. And this deep desire in Isaiah becomes what we call missions. Specific acts for specific people. All flowing from the mission heart of God. Missions. Where are you in this preparation process? If you're a Christian today, you're somewhere in this. You really are. There are no exceptions. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know for certain that he lives inside of you through his Holy Spirit. You are somewhere in this preparation process. I think if nothing else this morning, you can just thank God for that. In just a moment, I'm not even sure where I am, but I thank God you're at work in my life. How is he speaking to you? Maybe he's just at this point in your life just trying to get you to come to him. The first calling that you have in your life is, is a call to know him. And maybe you're here today and, and you don't know Jesus at all, but you feel that pull, you feel that tug, you realize that God is calling you to himself. He wants you to know him. He loves you. He has provided a way for all your sins to be forgiven. Just like he forgave Isaiah, he can forgive you. I don't care how badly you've messed up your life, how badly you've destroyed your life in your mind. God can make it clean. God can make it useful. Don't believe the enemy who says that you are useless to God. Not true. Not true. I invite you today, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to come and put your trust in Christ. Christian, I encourage you 
and over the next few weeks, we're going to keep coming back to this. Where are you in God's preparation of sending you out? You say, well, I'm too old, Pastor. Dear one, don't ever say that around me up close. Don't ever say to me, well, Pastor, I can't serve in that part of the church. I've already done my time. Listen, your time is up when I'm preaching your funeral. If you're breathing, God has purpose for you. If you're sitting here today under the sound of my voice, God has a mission for you, and it flows out of the heart of God. Where are you in this process? This is serious. This is why you're here. I'm not talking about here on Sunday morning. This is why you're on planet Earth. How is God speaking? How will you respond to him? The pastors and I will be down front. We'd be happy to pray with you, to encourage you. If you don't know Jesus, it would be our privilege to share Christ with you. You can leave here today with your sins forgiven and this brand new relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ.